Hello, and welcome to episode four of STEM Insights. I'm Tim Bradbury, and joining me this month, we have Liz Painter and Louise Herbert, and Catherine Witter and Damien Riddle. First up, we have Louise and Liz discussing the importance of incorporating careers learning into your curriculum. Right, lovely. Um, we've got uh, Liz Painter here, who I'm going to interview around the topic of careers in the science curriculum. So um, just to start off, Liz, just so we, we know who we're talking to, can you tell me a bit about your background, please? Yeah, sure. So I was a science teacher for 24 years working in Cheshire. And about 10, 12 years ago, another teacher and I set up a STEM club. And this grew. We had lots of students involved and lots of teachers from different STEM subjects. And we got, took part in lots of competitions, met lots of employers, and I started to learn about STEM careers. And then I realised I needed to know a bit more about what careers meant. I went back to university and did a master's degree in STEM, in, in careers, education and coaching in 2018. Um, I left teaching in 2019 and worked with the Local Enterprise Partnership on employer engagement, helping schools with their career strategy. And then a year ago, I started a PhD in psychology, um, looking at transitions from school to employment. But I've recently made the decision to leave academia because I want to come back to practitioner work. I do a little bit of work with STEM learning with their teacher CPD sessions, and I've helped do some consultancy work in creating some career learning materials for STEM learning as well. Thank you. And I know we really appreciate the work you do on courses, um, especially with your background coming from the teaching side of it. So you do understand what teachers have got to deal with and what's what's practical and realistic really in the classroom. So um, just to start off, what do you think schools tend to do well in careers education? Yeah, I think schools are working really hard to develop their careers programme. A lot of work's been happening in the last few years in this area. And often schools are working with really limited resources and they're providing some great opportunities for their for their students as work experience um, assemblies with external speakers, activities such as CV writing and mock interviews. So there's lots that young people are learning about for their career development. And I think especially during the pandemic, schools learned to work in different ways with the online working. And I think that opened up new opportunities to bring employers into the classroom and for students to be able to speak to people from the world of work. Yeah, absolutely. There has to be some good size to that, doesn't there? Mm. <laughs> um, and, you know, in the light of shortages in many STEM careers, what do you think realistically a classroom teacher in these subjects can do about it? I think there's a few approaches that a class teacher can take to this. Um, I think it's really important that we help young people see that a career in STEM can be for them. So introducing them to relatable role models. Um, and there's lots of easy ways to do this with posters and video resources. But, but getting somebody into the classroom is a really important um, way to do this for young people. But I think we need to be realistic and not every child in, and not every young person in your classroom wants to be a scientist or an engineer. So I think we have to have another approach as well and help young people to realise that there's non-STEM roles within STEM industries. So to be able to talk about things like the administrative roles or HR or legal roles that will be in local big STEM companies. And I think there's another trick that we can we can play here with young people as well. And 
there are lots of STEM roles in areas of in industries that young people might not realise have STEM involved. So finding out what our young people are interested in, like performing arts or sports, we might be able to introduce them to STEM careers within those areas. Fab, yeah. And how do you think um, sort of within the curriculum we should integrate careers information? Right, this is a good question. <laughs> and I think it really depends on where you're up to with bringing career learning in to the classroom. So you could be doing this already informally, talking about your career stories, maybe talking about work values and skills in the workplace. But the time might be right now to try and formalise this a little bit more in your curriculum and, and also make it sustainable in your curriculum. So there's three things I always like to say with teachers that I work with. If you can bring skills, careers and pathways into your schemes of work, into your lessons, this is a really great way to 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 introduce young people to careers. So, for example, um, in any topic that you teach, you can bring in um, careers related to that topic. So, for example, the topic of sound, you could talk about um, different roles like a sound engineer or audiologist, perhaps present the young people with a range of careers and ask them to go and research one of those to choose and present a poster or, or give a little presentation to the class. I think it's also important that we bring the pathways in. So for every topic that you teach, think about the possible qualifications that that pathway can go on to. So, for example, know what your local further education colleges or universities offer, the courses that they offer. Be aware of things like T-levels. Schools should know that T-levels are, more T-levels are being introduced every year. So, so keep aware of the T-levels that your local FE college um, are offering and how they may relate to the topic that you're teaching or the subjects that you're teaching. So the third thing that I mentioned was skills. So our subject is a very practical one and there's lots of skills that young people have the opportunity to develop in our lessons. So I think we should help students understand the skills they're developing in a particular task and then how these skills relate to the world of work. I've covered a lot here, but just to summarise, skills pathways and careers, if you can bring each of those into every scheme of work for every year group, then you're starting to embed career learning in your curriculum. Fantastic. And do you think it really matters to look at your local area and, and what's on offer there? Or is it better to widen it out and, and look at nationally what's the picture? I think you need to have both approaches within your classroom. So you do need to know what's on your doorstep. So be very aware of your local further education colleges and they'll have outreach support workers who want to work with teachers and to let them know of the courses that are on offer. And be aware of some of your local employers. And we can talk about employers a bit more in a moment, um, but also have an idea on the national picture as well. Right. So um, talking about um, employers and what they might want, what essential skills do you think students do need to help their employability? What, what are employers looking out for? I think this is a really complex topic. You can go online and you can see um, all sorts of lists of the essential skills that employers are looking for. Um, but I like to think of this in, in sort of three main areas. 
employers are looking for young people who are developing their intellectual skills. And by that, I mean things like problem solving, critical thinking, creativity. And these are things that we do in the classroom with our students all of the time when they're thinking about designing experiments, for example, and constructing um, their knowledge for exam um, question answers and looking at different texts. We need to help young people develop their interpersonal skills. So, for example, things like teamwork and leadership and negotiation and communication skills. And then something that I think we sometimes forget is we do need to help young people develop their intrapersonal skills. The being able to set goals, reflect on progress towards those goals, helping young people to learn how to adjust their behaviour so they can meet those goals. Adaptability, employers want to see that young people are able to um, cope with new situations. These are all important that we can be doing in the classroom. But just a word of caution here, if I can bring in a word of caution. Of be aware of the language you're using with young people when you're talking about skills. Your school might be using a skills framework um, and find out what the school is using. And it might be that it's a different department introducing this. For example, the English department might be introducing a skills framework that they're using. Try and stick to the language that your school are using, the vocabulary, so that you're not confusing your young people. But if you remember in the back of your mind, you're trying to help your students develop their intellectual skills like problem solving and creativity, their interpersonal skills, being able to communicate, work as part of a team, and their intrapersonal skills, being able to set goals, reflect, cope with new situations. Yeah, so how can an individual teacher help students develop these transferable skills if it's not already a whole school focus? Yeah, that's really important. So sometimes I think we overlook how um, important these skills are for the young person to know what they're doing. So, so we can take for granted that we're getting our students to work as part of a team, for example. But I think it make it really clear to the class that they're going to be working as part of a team on a particular project, but that part of the um, the the objective of the lesson is to develop their skills as working as part of a team. So let the young people know the importance of those skills that you're giving them the opportunity to develop. And there's a couple of there's a couple of nice activities you can do with young people so that they can reflect upon these skills. And, and one is um, you could try setting homework, find a local job advert, um, look at read the job advert, see what skills it's asking for, find a suitable job advert and then give it to your young people as a homework to write a cover letter for that job advert. And you're helping those young people develop their skill of being able to demonstrate that they have the skills. Because young people are going to be applying for jobs in the future, there's, there's lots they need to learn about, about the world of work and you can help them on this journey. I love that idea. Yeah, I really do. Um, so sort of on that topic, um, so many, many schools will have local employers. How easy do you think it is to engage with them outside organising official work experience? What's I'm your experience you, around them? <laughs> I'm going to pick you up on something, there, Louise, <laughs> because I think all schools have local employers. Schools don't work in isolation, we're part of the community and there's local employers that are part of that community as well, you know, providing jobs and work for everybody that lives in that community. So it might not be easy to engage these employers, but they are there. Um, I think you need to be creative and I'm going to give a few examples here. I think make the most of the existing networks that are already there. 
talk to your careers leader in school. Your careers leader has um, connections with external people, enterprise coordinator who helps with the career strategy. Enterprise advisors, they're volunteers from business that work with schools. So these people are already plugged into networks. So if you have a particular idea that you'd like to develop with an employer, a, a, perhaps a, a topic or a project you'd like to work with, plug into that network, find out who's or what connections are already there. You've also got your alumni network. Now, this might not be an official network, but you have all of these former students that have left and lots of them will successfully now have careers in all sorts of different areas. Find out what connections your school have to the alumni already. That might be something that they're starting to develop and see if you can find a student working in a former student working in an area that that you're teaching. You want to, to, to bring them in to talk about it. And, and just um, a little extra trick here. Tap into your school governors. Your school governors will all be linked to industry and to businesses locally. Find out what connections they've got. But you might need to be a little bit more creative in building up your network. So um, a few ideas on your drive to work. What companies do you pass? Look them up, find out what their business is, what they do. Have a little look at local job adverts. Who's advertising? Who needs staff? See if you can get in touch with them. So when you've identified these companies, you need to think about how you're going to approach them because it isn't easy that engaging with them. So you need to help the company to understand um, what the value is of them um, working with you. So be really clear in what you're asking them to do and also help the company to see what's in it for them. So perhaps if they're always advertising for apprentices, you can help them understand that coming in and speaking to the 13 and 14 year olds is a way of connecting with a future talent pipeline. Or if you research their company values, you might find that they have social responsibility criteria. So you could encourage them as part of their community work to come and work with your class. Fab, thank you. Um... And there's also often a challenge in showing truly diverse role models for students. What would you do to address this? Yeah, this is an interesting question as well. Um, I think we need to provide role models that are relatable to young people. And I think the group of people who are most relatable to young people are your former students. So I think you really need to exploit the alumni network and if there isn't an, um, an alumni network already in your school try and talk to people who could be making contact with former students perhaps there's somebody in admin who could start a LinkedIn page for example and LinkedIn is a great social networking way of trying to find um, people professional people in the world of work who might be willing to come in and talk to your school um, so to go back to the to that diverse role models it's tailoring role models for your class. You know who will be inspiring for the young people in your class. So you can go and look at specific resources on websites for specific groups of, of young people. But you know who your young people need. And there's nothing more inspiring than hearing about somebody who went to your school. I was a former student like you are and went on to do whatever to try and get those people back into the classroom. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sort of all the things you've talked about here. But if you could leave us with one takeaway, um, what would it be? OK, find out 
what your students are interested in and what they're doing outside of the classroom. Find out their hobbies and their interests. Find out if they've got a part-time job or what volunteering they do, what sports clubs they're interested in and they're part of. And I would advise you to try and do this once a year, capture this information once a year, and you can trickle that in and feed that into your teaching and your planning throughout the whole year. And three quick examples. So if you find out what volunteering they're doing and part-time work they're doing, those young people are already developing their interpersonal skills, working with others. Draw on that and bring that into your teaching, help them share their experiences and help others learn. If you know the hobbies and the interests that your young people have, you might be able to bring in somebody into the classroom. So, for example, if the young people are interested in animals or animal care, get somebody in from a local animal charity to talk about careers within um, the animal management um, industry. And find out what your career ideas are of your young people, because you might be able to invite people into the classroom to talk about the day to day job. So, for example, medics get somebody to talk about their day-to-day -day work and the career progression. And then they can also introduce young people to other careers around that main career idea they have and just expand their career ideas just a little bit. So my takeaway message would be talk to your young people and find out what they're already doing and what they're interested in. And thanks to Liz and Louise there for that fantastic discussion. Up next, we have Catherine and Damien to discuss assessment of practical work in the A-level sciences. Hello, I'm Catherine Witter and I'm the Senior Subject Specialist here at STEM Learning. And my name is Damien Riddle and I am the Senior Qualifications Manager for Science uh, at Pearson. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day to talk to me, Damien. Before joining STEM Learning only a few months ago now, with my AQA assessment hat on, we've worked together with colleagues from OCR and Educast to lead the quality assurance process around the A-level science practical endorsement, supporting teachers through monitoring activity to make those accurate assessment decisions around the common practical assessment criteria or CPAC and the use of the subject specific apparatus and techniques. It makes perfect sense that I've asked for you to have a conversation focused on practical science and amongst other things it would be great if you could share with me some of the strategies that Pearson teachers have used to plan for, assess and track the progress that learners are making against those criteria and if you've seen a marked difference during the pandemic. I left the classroom after a career in science teaching to join AQA in September 2015 so I didn't have the opportunity to work on the current assessment model for A-level practical work. For members of the STEM community, especially those who are in the first year of teaching, I think it would be really interesting to understand why the A-level sciences, that is biology, chemistry, physics and geology, became 100% examination with the practical endorsement running in parallel to the teaching and learning throughout the two year course. Effectively, why was that practical coursework component removed? I think, Catherine, there were probably uh, a couple of major reasons for deciding to remove the practical coursework component. One of the most important was that it wasn't really differentiating between students at all, um, so that student experiences were on a very limited range of practical work and the sorts of marks that they were getting were very, very similar, no matter whether they were a grade A student or a grade E student. 
Um, and a lot of that was because practical work could simply be, be repeated and repeated so that what we were seeing was the sort of best version. And that doesn't really reflect the, the same sort of assessment that happens with a written paper. You know, you can't just simply reset the same paper over and over again until you do well. Um, so that was one reason. And, and the second reason, I think, really was because the range of practical work that was taking place in, in coursework activities was very limited. Students were becoming extremely good at one or two very narrow activities. So in chemistry, for example, they could all do a titration really, really well, and they could all measure the enthalpy change of a reaction using a polystyrene cup. But if you gave them anything else that they weren't familiar with, you, know, you asked them to set up um, set up quick fit apparatus for, for apparatus for reflux or for distillation, they wouldn't have a clue. Um, so a lot of it just meant that when they were going off to university, universities were saying they just didn't have the range of practical experience that they probably should have had at A level. Oh, well, yeah, thanks for explaining that. So as the specifications then were nearing to that year of first teaching in September 2015, what were the biggest challenges for awarding organisations? Essentially, teachers were moving away from that quantitative mark scheme that accompanied coursework marking that did use to contribute to the overall subject grade to a qualitative one. Can we start there? Yeah, so th there were obviously a number of challenges. What probably the most major challenge was what was it going to look like? Um, so there was a certain amount of pre pressure, particularly from some of the learning societies, for the practical work at A level to be project based. Um, uh, but again, we did we did consider that as an option. But you know, logistically for some schools that can be very difficult if they have high numbers. And again, if they're putting in a lot of work for a for a project, it will be on one particular aspect of practical work and it doesn't necessarily address the issue about breadth. So we sort of decided that what we wanted to look at was effectively a steeplechase, a, a number of practical uh, uh, experiments that students would do across a range of different techniques. So we had to decide on some criteria that would be used uh, for teachers to assess the practical work that they saw and then obviously to develop training so that teachers knew what it is they were looking for. For each of those criteria, they needed to know how to apply them. Um, and importantly, of course, because you know, just because the, the, the work isn't being assessed in the same way to count towards marks, there was still a pass fail decision at the end. So it needs to be robust. And if it's if it's going to be robust, it needs to be checkable. So we needed to tell teachers how it was we wanted them to record the work uh, to make sure that it was being tracked properly so that you know it could be it could be monitored and we could check that the skills were being correctly assessed to the right standard and and all of those sorts of things and then probably the most important thing is obviously you know with the four different awarding bodies that offer a levels to students in england we needed to make sure that between the four awarding organisations, we also had a common understanding of what the standard was going to be for a pass in each of the criteria uh, for CPAC and to make sure that there was consistency between us, that you know, one of us wasn't requiring something that the others weren't doing. Um, so we developed the idea of pen portraits that we would you know, give a, a brief written description of, of what a particular standard looked like uh, for, for a particular CPAC statement. So, you know, perhaps we'd, we'd write one statement or one pen portrait that said this is a student that is just about at the pass criteria and here's one that's obviously working much higher. Um, so it was to give teachers the idea of the sorts of strategies they could use when assessing this work in the classroom. Yeah, so a lot of work went in there. 
Thanks for sharing that. So for teachers that are new to A-level science teaching or maybe even teaching out of their specialism, the first port of call for them should be the website of the awarding organisation that they intend making entries with and then to both find resources, but also make the board aware that they will need a monitoring visit at some stage during that first teaching. Maybe talking to other centres too about what they do when planning and tracking to make this effective and time efficient, but also how they'll assess learners as individuals when there's a shortage of equipment, for example. Now, monitoring work, that's the work that the awarding organisation does to quality assure the assessment decisions that science teachers are making, has just returned to face to face this term, having been carried out remotely throughout the pandemic due to a welcomed off qual adjustment. For those teachers who are yet to have their first face to face monitoring visit this cycle, or for those teachers who've never had a monitoring visit, can you outline briefly what's involved for us? How does a monitoring visit look and feel? Is a standard approach taken by all the awarding organisations? I mean, monitoring work is in its eighth year now, and many teachers will be confident, but with 16% of science teachers leaving the profession within the first 12 months, and 53% leaving within the first five years, it is important to keep reassuring teachers and providing guidance at every opportunity we have. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. I mean, this is an area where I think from your previous role with AQA, you'll have much more experience uh, than, than I do. Um, but I think it's important to say first and foremost, that although the monitoring visit is about ensuring that the standard of assessment is correct, it's also important to support teachers as well. So the, the idea of the monitor isn't the sort of big bad wolf that's coming in to tell you, you know, that you're doing it wrong and why you're doing it wrong. The idea of the monitor is to check the work you're doing, to offer support, to offer guidance. I mean, ultimately, at the, you know, at the end of the day, they've got to um, give you a, 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 a decision about whether or not they agree with the standard that a school is applying, but they'll try and do that in as supportive a way as possible and to make sure that if they do have concerns, they'll they'll give you some feedback on how to address those and a timescale to look at those improvements being made. Um, and what the monitor will do in a school, they'll come in, they'll look at um, some of the student work. So typically they'll look at perhaps 10 pieces or 10 portfolios of student work, ideally across different teaching sets. If you have more than one teaching set within your within your school um, and then they'll do they'll sit in on a practical lesson. And the idea of that is they're not they're not there to particularly to inspect the students and they're not there to inspect the teacher. They're really there to sort of interact with the students a little to find out what you know, whether the students are enjoying the practical work, whether they understand what they're being assessed on um, and where possible to sort of you know, look at some of the, the, the skills that are being assessed directly by the teacher um, through visual um, inspections in the classroom rather than rather than relying on on, on evidence from written work. Um, so those are those are the things that are all useful. Often it's quite useful as well if the monitor has a bit of a chance to to, to talk to the technician because the technicians are usually the beating heart of the department when it comes to practical work. And when monitors speak to technicians, they tend to get a, a, a bit of a feel about how much practical work is taking place and the quality and variety of that work. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. And, you know, on my travels, you know, over the last seven years or so with AQA, you know, I've probably been into a few hundred schools, actually. And uh, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, the, the approach that people have taken to this has been rich and varied. The important thing, though, isn't it, is, is adhering to the standard and making sure that we can see or monitors can see what they need to, you know, at that point in that, in that cycle. 
So when a centre has passed monitoring successfully, the science teachers at the centre can report their holistic decision for each individual learner for the practical endorsement and the outcome can be either a pass or a not classified, which the awarding organisation will award against the overall subject grade. Many universities will require a pass in the practical endorsement if the A-level science grade is a requirement for their course, and that's testament to the value of the endorsement. Being able to carry out a set of instructions, investigate, risk assess, collect, present and process data and to research, reference and report are, are valuable transferable skills that are important to have when studying any subject. As well as the practical skills being assessed directly in teachers um, by teachers in labs whilst learners are working though, can you talk to me about how practical skills are assessed indirectly on the examination papers? Yeah, certainly. So it differs a little bit between um, awarding bodies in most just in terms of on exactly which exam papers practical skills are assessed. So with some awarding bodies, it's assessed across all of the exam papers. For other awarding bodies, you may discover that the practical skills are, are assessed primarily in, in one of the papers. Um, but within each of our specifications, we've identified a list of skills that we say are suitable for indirect assessment, in other words, through being assessed through uh, written questions on practicals. And they cover a range of different um, areas. So it may be, for example, plotting, interpreting graphs. It may be some data analysis or calculations based on experimental data. Um, it might be analysis of errors in evaluation of uncertainties within experimental data. Um, it may be a planning exercise of some description. Um, or it might just simply be simple questions that ask them about a, a sp very specific technique. So we might ask them about the use of a specific uh, instrument or we might ask them about uh, a particular technique. So those are the sort of range of things. They'll cover across all the different um, what we call assessment objectives of the course. So they may be based on recall. They may be based on application. We may ask uh, about a practical situation that's that's not absolutely familiar but which they can apply their knowledge to um, and across the awarding bodies we've agreed a sort of uh, a sort of benchmark that it will be a minimum of 15 percent of the marks for a level and for as that will depend on the practical skills so there is a, a consistency between the awarding bodies of between 15 and 20 percent of the marks that will assess the practical skills Thanks for explaining that. During the pandemic, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Ofqual made some adjustments to the requirements for a learner to meet the holistic pass in the practical endorsement. But essentially, hands-on practical work did continue throughout when possible, as there were no changes to the written papers, given that, you know, exam papers are written well in advance of the examination series that they're used for. And many teachers don't appreciate that. I think it's around 18 months. Um, but, but before before we finish today, can we talk briefly about the framework of 10 benchmarks for practical science published in September 2017 um, in the Gatsby funded research Good Practical Science and led by Sir John Holman, a long time champion of practical science and author of the Gatsby 2014 Good Career Guidance Report, which set out eight benchmarks for good career guidance in schools and a widely welcomed framework for careers education in England. 
Firstly, I'd advise all teachers who haven't already engaged with that research to read it. The 10 benchmarks give the ingredients for good practical science by international standards, with a section fully dedicated to how English schools measure up. But can I ask you, and not necessarily from your assessment perspective, but from your teaching experience perspective, how can we support teachers after all the disruption caused by the pandemic to put practical science firmly back at the heart of science teaching again rapidly so that learners can engage with the assessment requirements of key stage four and five in particular? Yeah, it's a very good question, Catherine. And I think the other thing that's worth saying here is that particularly post COVID, so many schools have been struggling to play to play catch up, particularly where they've they've you know they've missed uh, teaching time, even even if all teaching time has been disrupted because of the move from face to face to to online. And I know certainly the ASE published um, a report uh, fairly recently on on practical science post COVID nineteen and thinking about uh, some of the difficulties that arise here, and particularly have you know the the, the teacher research they've done here. Um, looking at some of the difficulties that teachers themselves say are, will, will play play a part here. So I think probably again going back to the Gatsby framework, it's it's possibly important thinking about three different things. I think the first thing, and the most important one on the Gatsby framework, is that you need to make sure that there's a sufficient amount of practical work planned for science. Um, you know, particularly if you're thinking about assessment, GCSE and A level, the assessment burden on practical work is about 15 to 20 percent. Um, so that um, assessment weighting really should be something you're considering when you're thinking about the amount of time that you should be dedicating to practical science and making sure that that is planned and is part of your curriculum. And of course, that's good practice as well when it comes to looking at your um, Ofsted inspectors as well. You know, they'll be looking at the, the way in which you plan your curriculum, and that will include within science uh, how well you're planning your practical work. Um, I think the other two Gatsby points are, are really about experts and it's experts in two disciplines. So it's experts in teachers and it's also having expert technical support. Um, and those two things are obviously both very important as well. So it's trying to make sure you know, from a, from a teacher point of view that you are absolutely on top of your game. You've done all the necessary training, um, particularly for looking at things like CPAC or for, for GCSE, looking at how skills there are being monitored and assessed and just making sure that you give yourself a little bit of time in a, in a very crowded um, workspace to make sure that you've done a little bit of preparation for your practical work that you'll be doing with, with your students. Um, technical support is one of the most tricky ones, really, because you know, with budgetary pressures on schools, te technician time is often getting sliced and technicians are either uh, finding themselves being made redundant or just having reduced hours. Um, so it's really a case, I think, of making sure that, you know, that within your curriculum leads for science are really, really fighting for the for the budget there to make sure that you're getting as much technical support as you can, because really without good technical support, um, you're going to struggle to be able to do the volume of practical work that I think needs to really be put in to make sure that students are getting the, the most rewarding and enjoyable experience out of their science lessons. Yeah, and, and I think those three that you've talked about, you know, they are, if they are prioritised, you know, they're going to be the enabler, aren't they? You know, for the other benchmarks as well Absolutely. to be uh, to be satisfied and considered. So thank you for, for sharing your view there. 
So all that remains for me today is to say thank you again for your time, Damien. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I hope that you'll be happy to have another one with me in the near future, focusing on another area of important focus for teachers. That's no problem, Catherine. It was great to chat. Thank you. Bye now. Bye bye. Bye. And thanks there to Damien and Catherine for sharing their thoughts with us on A-Level Practical Assessment. Finally, for this month, a quick reminder for you to check the STEM Community Advent Calendars. There are many opportunities which you might have missed, including grant funding and competitions for 2023, as well as a discount code for a free balance from SLS Select Education Suppliers. So thanks again to Liz, Louise, Catherine and Damien, and I'll see you next month for more STEM Insights. You have been listening to STEM Insights, a podcast produced by STEM Learning for STEM educators across the United Kingdom. If you have any questions, you can ask them in the STEM community. Simply head over to community.stem.org.uk and join the discussions.